This is the Black Hole Podcast with host Ryan Millsap. With a vision of how real estate could turn into movies and how movies could turn into money, Millsap set out to build the state's largest film complex. After checking that box, Millsap returned to his entrepreneurial roots, where real estate ventures, entertainment opportunities, nonprofit support, and golf course business deals rule the day. What's next for Ryan Millsap? Listen up, and you'll find out. Today on the podcast, I've got a leader in the digital gaming world, Mr. Todd Harris. As CEO of Skillshot Media, owner of Ghost Gaming, chair of the Atlanta Esports Alliance, co-founder of Hi-Res Studios, and chair of NASEF, the North American Scholastic Esports Federation, Todd Harris is, well, busy. As CEO of Skillshot Media, Todd Harris has proven that he has vision. Located in the heart of Midtown Atlanta, Skillshot is, well, first the largest esports venue in Atlanta, but it's also a turnkey space for fans to experience live, virtual, and hybrid gaming events. We will talk to Todd about how Skillshot came to be and about his other ventures. And if there's one man in Georgia that represents esports and gaming, it's Todd Harris. Let's welcome Atlanta's gaming guru, Mr. Todd Harris. Today on the podcast, we have Todd Harris, who is one of the leaders in gaming in Atlanta, one of the leaders in gaming in the country, but in Atlanta, for sure, one of the leaders. Todd, welcome to the program. It's great to be here. So gaming, you have been at this a long time. Yeah, 18 years in the world of making games or now doing gaming events and embracing gaming culture. And then um, about 15 years in tech before that. So what's some of the, do you know some of the history? Like, I mean, I think back like when I was a kid when we played Pong on Atari, that had to be like early, early first gen gaming or was there a gen before that there was a gen before that you go back to space wars at mit um you know really considered the first game but you're about the same age as i so we we lived gaming history so pong even before atari magnavox odyssey 2 circa 1978 so i was 10 years old Mm -hmm. dad plugged that into the big heavy tv you play pong when i score on you it doesn't even have digital scoring that was too advanced to put a tick mark so physically on the magnavox odyssey i'm moving a little peg to keep score that was what i started on with gaming then atari 2600 you know took off from there but very very old school yeah i remember i mean when i was a kid it was atari and in television yeah, after that 2600 Atari, you kind of broke into like, you were either team and television, or then there was ColecoVision, if oh, you remember right. that. So some of the kids had that. I but. didn't know anybody had Coleco. Okay, yeah, well, television was more popular. But yeah, that was living room gaming. Mm-hmm. Probably you and a couple buddies trying to beat each other's high score. And um, it's all about that human desire to master something little bit of competition, a little bit of camaraderie. And uh, that's been the 
theme of gaming ever since. The graphics get better, the connectivity gets better. Now you're not the interfaces get better. Yeah, the immersion. Right, the immersion. I, I think back like I always hated the Intellivision controls, but I loved the Atari control. And then I would play games on my Commodore sixty four, which was all like buttons. Didn't like that interface. So Atari for me was kind of like I liked that the best. But then maybe in the eighties, Nintendo must have come along early 80s i would think yeah you're right and i mean that particularity specificity of interface preference that continues to today right you you'll go on reddit twitter people will be having the equivalent of religious wars between microsoft xbox controller and sony playstation controller and of course then you compare that to the personal computer with keyboard and mouse and people get very passionate because there are people things. still playing games on keyboard and mouse, right? Oh, yeah. With those yeah. ball controllers and all that stuff? Not so much the mouse control, the roller ball, if mm -hmm. you will, like old missile mm -hmm. command, but the ball flipped upside down as a mouse. That's actually still the most precise way and quickest way in the hands of the most skilled player to aim. And so, again, the console players that are using an analog joystick, you can only turn so quickly with that and you can only be so precise versus a mouse. They are incredibly, amazingly accurate and fast. And so as a game designer, if you make a game that's played on both the consoles and the personal computer, some players with controllers, some players with mouse, you actually put in code and mechanics to give slight edge to the controller players. It actually, in many cases, is doing some of the aiming for you. The bullets are a little stickier. It's just giving you the equivalent of some extra training wheels and assist so that it's, so it's also more fun compet so or competitive. It's competitive. So that it's competitive, that's right. So it's like it's like a handicap in golf. Exactly right, yep. Now see, now, are there any versions where you can turn the handicaps off where then it's just like, this is, this is no holds barred, like who's the best? Choose your weapon. Some games, yes, but um, for most of those cases, they would just play the same platform against each other. So just PC, keyboard, and mouse against uh, keyboard and mouse. And it. we don't allow controls because the controller has this artificial element. So uh, there you go. We're okay. getting really deep. I love this. I mean, this, High-level game competition. This is, this, is what, uh, this is what interests me about these things. Okay, so let's go back to you're in tech. When do you start conceptualizing the notion of building your own games? So the concept, not the doing it, the concept was very, very young. So played Pong, played Space Invaders with my dad, love these games, play all the games that are out there and think, I wanna make games. This is seems like the closest thing to magic. Like you just learn these instructions and you can create something out of thin air and build worlds. So like, let's learn computer programming. These days you got to say coding, but back mm -hmm. then yeah. people said programming. So yeah, crack open a book and just start learning basic typing in a program. And with the idea that one day I'd create games, went to college, studied computer science. You were at Chapel Hill? Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Great school. They, um, I loved that I got the engineering, but it was also really a liberal arts school because I'm also interested in a lot more than just engineering, so it was a great place to go. And the game industry back then had kind of dipped. So famously in 19, 
circa you know 86 you can read about how they made far too many cartridges for the game et and it was a big flop and they literally had to bury hundreds of thousands of them in it was the a desert. terrible game it was a horrible game but um so it was a little bit down so was i about uh, the same time as the legend of zelda wasn't it like yeah yeah much better game much better game and, and i uh, wore that game out and the uh yeah so there wasn't a lot of game jobs available so that's what brought me to atlanta with just a big software company ncr brought me down here and then left ncr to do startup in fintech um learned a bunch uh at a company called radiant systems from some amazing entrepreneurs it was just an incredible environment one of atlanta's first unicorn companies and and just taught me everything about working at a startup and i fell in love with that life so the first transition was i like tech I like the startup tech more than the big company tech. Did that for quite a while. And then it was with one of the original founders of Radiant Systems, Erez uh, Gorin, that we started the game company. So he knew I had been a gamer in my past and he had been a huge gamer in his past, uh, written some games for the 2600 Atari actually wow. back in the day. And so, so that's- he's a little older than you. Yeah, got a couple years mm -hmm. on me. That's right. And um, yeah, so we started the company High Res Studios then in 2005. Uh, we remembered what it was like to make games when you could do it with one or two people. You were the programmer, you were the artist, you were the animator, you were the designer because it was like two dots yeah. was your character. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot that had changed. Well, I remember I used to have an office in Irvine, California. And it was, I want to say like 2003, 2004-ish. And we were expanding and we didn't have enough office space. And so one of the guys, one of the new executives we brought on, it was you know real stud guy, acquisition guy. He went upstairs into what was like a pre-WeWork um, kind of shared office space. And there were these three kids next to him that... He got to know a little bit, but I mean, you know, as he would tell it, he's like, all these guys do is goof off all day, eat pizza three times a day, leave early, come in late. Sometimes they'd be there at like, I'd, I'd get in at 5 a.m. and they'd be there. So they were really weird office hours. And over time, like, you know, I, we got to be kind of buddies. And finally I asked him, I'm like, what the hell do you guys do? And they're like, oh, we, we, we have a gaming company and we're, we're building games. We're like coding games. He said, really? He said, is, is, is there money in that? I'm like, well, we sure hope so. You know who those guys were? Blizzard Entertainment. Yeah, when you said Irvine, I, I, I mean, thought that was coming. That's, how bananas that's amazing. Is, right? And he to this day like laughs like, like I, that's what a billionaire looks like. <laughs> no that. rules on on when the time of work is pizza all day dreaming big going for it but having the skills like having those baseline skills that let three dudes build some game i don't even know what a war of the worlds or i don't know some, it was the time of world of warcraft i mean world they, of war, that's what yeah. it was world oh, yeah. of, okay so they're yeah. building world of warcraft right in a temporary office in irvine these three dudes that are like a right out of a skating magazine i love it 
Yeah, that was the time of the of the MMO, the massively multiplayer online game of which World of Warcraft was and still is one of the biggest titles. And so the idea that back to us playing, you know, on the couch, handing the controller, since then the internet happens, connectivity happens, computers get more powerful. So now you can connect with people all over the world. Now you're playing your avatars beside another human, but that person is in Irvine while you're in Atlanta or they're in Southeast Asia. And so suddenly the entire world is stitched together in these virtual worlds having fun. So yeah, that was exactly the time, those early mid 2000s that we were working on our first game at high res. And it was always around that vision, the type of games that we wanted to build because you can make single player story games that are mm -hmm. more cinematic, yeah, interactive movie almost. Well, that's I was actually thinking how much how much this looks like movie making, and in fact, you know, um, Epic Games has had a massive impact on the movie industry with the software they have that's called Real Real Engine. Unreal, Unreal, yeah. Engine. Unreal Engine, Unreal Engine, exactly. And that's basically what they make Mandalorian with is Unreal Engine. Yep, because you know you go up to Epic. And they, you know, I, I spent some time with those guys in Montreal and they consider themselves just to be storytellers, right? Exactly. Because they're, they're trying to draw you into a world where you become part of the story. A hundred percent. I mean, as people talk about and we collectively try to figure out what the metaverse is, what the future of storytelling is, um, Unreal Engine and Epic is really at the center of that because they've been world building now in 3D virtual spaces, you know, for decades. So, you know, funny story at high res, we knew we wanted to make a game. We wanted it to be immersive. We wanted it to be three dimensional, not VR, but a 3D world that you went within. And we didn't want to write every piece of code from scratch like you used to when we were making games. So you look for a game engine and we looked across three to five compelling ones and settled on Unreal. At the time they were on Unreal version three, it had just come out, drove to Raleigh, North Carolina to hand them a million dollar check to make this game, to license the engine. And they, for about two hours, tried to talk us out of the idea. They said, we don't know what we're doing. We've never made a video game before. You know, maybe we should just get back in the car and go back to Atlanta. It was the oh, strangest. They tried to, they're trying to tell you, like, why are you doing this? Why like, are you doing this? You guys come from fintech and you made games a million years ago. It's very different. Probably just going to waste your money. Like, yeah, we'll take your check. But like, you really sure you want to do this? Anyway, turned out after enough persistence, we we figured it out. But it was uh, it was just kind of What was that humorous. first game? Oh, you're going to get me all emotional now. It was, uh, our first game was called Global Agenda. It's still my favorite game of all time. I'm in a very small group of people that feel that way. It was not financially successful. Uh, but you love the game. Love the game. It was too ambitious, but ambitious in all the best ways. Keep going. Like, tell me, tell me, like, imagine that you never made this game and you don't know all the things that you know today. But you're telling me about the world of this game. 
Yeah, so the world of the game was not where its innovation was. It was okay, but it was really the mechanics, the verbs of the game. Um, the world of the game was set in a dystopian future Earth, fairly normal for a video game setting, right? There's been another world war. I guess you AI, gotta get back to the law of the jungle. You gotta get back to tribalism, right? Mm -hmm. So there's AI robots. This was 2010 that we released it. Uh, we worked on it for five years. And um, so your fairly dystopian future world where humanity's kind of devolved into these different agencies. You know, so you are kind of a mercenary or an agent in the style of like 24 agent. You know, you like to blow stuff up. And um, well, you have to, it's a law of the jungle. Exactly. You can't turn to anybody else for it's justice. A hostile environment because there's these robots out there. They're trying to take you out and sand creatures and also the other humans could be hostile because they're in a different player formed agency. So that's the world. But what really made it unique is how many different genres of games it attempted to put into one. So, yes, you know, yeah. cinema, right? So, you know, it, when you break cinema boundaries, I don't know, Slumdog Millionaire. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do you describe that movie? So it either works really well or it doesn't, but it's hard to market it. So Global Agenda, you're this agent character you have combat that feels really immersive closest thing you could compare it to is a game like halo where mm -hmm. it's very smooth and you're first you know, person first person survivor that's right but then you also have different classes so that accommodates play styles you're a healer i'm a damage dealer you know sarah's a so you also need robotics. to form tribes you exactly. have to form tribes exactly. to be the strongest. You, that's exactly right. So you have the specialization of roles. Mm -hmm. And then you actually have team-based combat. You go out and literally take over territory in the real world. And you can then build factories in the world that produce ships and robots that you use to literally try to like take over the most land in the world. It was very ambitious. It's kind of 10 games in one, which was its strength yeah, and, its, and weakness. its weakness. Yeah. That's why you love it so much because you you are actually creating an alternate reality. You were creating what they would call the metaverse today. Yeah. You, were, you were asking people to come in and build a whole life. Exactly right. It had a lot of player immersion, digital items. You know, all it was free to play and it monetized through digital items. And really, while it was not a financial success or close to it, it produced every other high res game since then it's like a body and we could go in and These take an take organ mm -hmm. and that's a, that's the game smite Oop, now that's paladins Oop, that's rogue company right because so, you started to identify the things people loved most they loved the team building they loved the first person shooter they loved, and so then you just made games that only did those things that's right they were then um more narrow but deeper versus mm -hmm. being wide and too shallow where we'd be judged on the weakest link now mm -hmm. we were deep around a particular element. So it was a big learning. I mean, I think that there's a there's a there's a philosophical idea of an education that in the US generally wants to be broad and less deep on particular subjects. And I just got back from England and I spent a bunch of time at Oxford. And I you know, I've been I've been going there for decades for old reunions and different things. But one of the things that's so interesting in Oxford is if you study physics, all you do for three years is study physics. So by the time you're done with your physics degree, they expect you to basically be able to go and get a job as a physicist. 
Now that means that after you've worked in the field, I think they then automatically give you a master's degree after like three years of work because between your undergrad and your work, they're like, you're a master's degree student in physics. Now I think the philosophy of that is incredibly powerful because if you can go deep in one subject, like go as deep as you possibly can, I mean, within reason, I mean, obviously, you know, Einstein's theories, maybe we're beyond people, everybody studying physics, but you go as deep as you possibly can. And then if you want to jump over and study a different subject, you know how to go deep. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I know when we were, you know, hiring, even at Radiant and definitely high res, they would talk about the, you know, the T-shaped person. Yeah. You're, you're broad enough across the top of the T that you know the whole process, you know the lifestyle, but then you go really deep. And certainly, I think every profession, but when it comes to games, it's now a bunch of different specialties working together like film and you need to know at a high level the whole process because you know what on the virtual assembly line is like coming to you and what you need to produce for your next internal client but then right. you've got to be the guy or the girl you know the, the one around your particular expertise. so how's that work so when you're making a game does somebody become like the equivalent of a director and a producer Yep. Right, so somebody's in charge of the business and somebody's in charge of the story? Pretty much. So you, you generally have the um, lead designer who's the most akin to the director. They're maintaining the overall creative vision in their head and everyone who works in games is creative. And honestly, everyone or most people aspire to be a designer and they usually have to be a little dictatorial to be have a strong enough vision, sometimes like great directors. Mm -hmm. You've got the producer that's, they're just driving the win and the how much. That's it. Yeah. That's it. And then often in games, you'll have other groups like uh, an art director who's maintaining the cohesive aesthetic vision across the characters. You have that in movies as well, art directors. Yep. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really uh, very similar. I mean, some of the roles today overlap entirely, um, certainly, an animator, if you look at a 3D or even a 2D animated film, you've got animators, visual effects who are authoring spells or explosions, you know, just literally the visual part. So those are one-to-one -one folks that could transfer between film and movie. And then some are a little more particular, like programmers, obviously. So right now, so obviously early on, you're, you're playing all those roles when you're an early entrepreneur, just like you do in almost any business where you're the early entrepreneur, you're the, you know, the chief bottle washer and the CEO. And in this case, you were probably playing the role of the producer, the director, the coder. That's but, right. But, yeah, you, you fill them and then eventually you, you build up a little team. But, right. So tell me about the team today. So today, how many games are you guys developing I guess, what's, what's the portfolio look like of existing games? How does that run, right? Like from a business standpoint, the stuff that's in existence, and then obviously you have the stuff in development. And then tell me a little bit about how those teams run. Yeah, and and um, so I was at high res because I'm now out, but I was there from four people to 400 people. So the first phase was from four to around 50 people and then 75 people we shipped our first game global agenda with 75 people should have been three times that to 
do the scope that, that we you're needed. doing. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you get a lot more specialized. You shipped that to whom? Who? What was the platform? So we were one of the things that we got right was we were really early to see this transition to digital distribution. So when we started the company, if you wanted to buy a game, you would go to a physical store, GameStop, Best Buy, EB Games back then, and you would buy a box and you would put a disc into your machine and you would play it. And most of the games you played by yourself and multiplayer was a tack on feature. Our thought was, we don't need a box. We don't need retailers. These are bits, like they're putting computer bits in a box and you're going to a store. It doesn't make any sense. So we're going to distribute online. And rather than multiplayer being a tack on feature, it's going to be all about the multiplayer. The gameplay is going to be emergent from these other players and these player agencies. Some of it was an, an economic decision because we thought, we will have less original content to make, less levels and enemies and just less money to spend if the fun is me encountering Ryan in the world and what that interaction is. And some of it was those were the type of games we enjoyed playing and had a vision to create. So digital distribution, right around that time, the platform for the personal computer was called Steam. Um, and it's still the main place where you buy games to play on the personal computer if you're not playing on the Xbox. Or you just the- log into whatever, steam.com or whatever. That's right, yeah. And uh, Epic, who makes Fortnite now, have they have a competing store as well. So uh, later in hi life, we would publish on both those platforms and the company does today. But you, you went to Steam, you downloaded the game, and multiplayer was an innovation, digital distribution, and this whole idea of a free-to-play business model, which is now how most games right. Well, that's happen. how Fortnite just blew up, right? Yep, and, and, um, and Fortnite does it exceptionally well, but um, others had done it before that. Mm-hmm. And so, and it was a good learning for us because the first early, let's call it couple months of this game, Global Agenda, we were originally thinking we'll charge like, 30 bucks for the game and we'll have expansion packs. And then we're like, that's not working. Let's make it free to download and have items in the game. And just with that simple change, we saw every day five times as many downloads. Just telling the people that- Come try it for free. Come try First it First taste is free. Yeah, and even we really just said it's a free game, even more than like it's a free demo. Yeah, right. That's and right. It, no, it's a yeah, free game. Free game, yeah. and then it happens to be in the game. You now, if you want to win the game, if you well, wanna- if you want to advance faster, actually, you, you hit on it. It's funny because it's like that's a really sensitive point in the gaming industry. So, like in all of our games, we weren't perfect, but we always tried to avoid what's called pay to win, which so is exactly a, it, like you said. Uh, but there, so there was always a road that if you were diligent enough and committed enough, that you could earn your way. Exactly. through the game and win and that you would be on an even playing field back to the, the our first conversation for us because it was always comparing it to a sport or a fair level playing field we didn't want you to be able to pay to get an advantage so is it, it wait so you, you get a short short term advantage you, but not an ultimate really there were there's 
to simplify it, two main things that people buy in a game that's not pay, that's not uh, pay to win, right? In a pay to win game, which a lot of mobile games are, Tell I just know. get a sword that does more damage. It costs five bucks. That's and I it. hit you over the head and it does twice as much damage. Very simple. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But you're not going to position that as a sport because the community won't see that it's fair. So in a high res game or other games like League of Legends that you know try to be more balanced, most of the money comes from cosmetics that don't change your ability one bit. So you're spending money just on pure ego status, status prestige, fun. you know, do you really play better in the Air Jordans or do you just look better? It's the equivalent. You're stepping on to the electronic basketball court, it just happens to be in a fantasy world and you have got the amazing helmet or glow on your sword and it doesn't it's all make swag. You it's just all. swag. So that's the primary way that money is earned and then there are other times where the community is pretty comfortable with a time or money trade-off. So you've got That's more money thinking, yeah. than disposable time. And as you said, this other player who has a lot of time, they're grinding their way. And it's going to take them 10 hours to earn that. And right. you're like, I'm just going to drop 10 bucks right now and get it. Community's generally good with that as long as there's a path to it. As long, That's okay. That's what I was thinking. So, so it's not a, it's an ultimate even playing field like America, right? It's ultimately you can earn your way out, whatever. But there are advantages you might start with over somebody else. You might get it a little faster if you're dropping coin, exactly. Although a lot of these games, that's a more modest part of the mix than than even just the cosmetics. It kind of depends on the game. Yeah, there's been a, a number of games that my kids were playing over the years at different ages. And just as object lessons, then I'll say to them, I bet I can beat this game in about four hours. They say, no, we've been playing this game for weeks. And I said, listen, if I spend $100, like this thing's going to accelerate real, real fast. And I just, as an object lesson, we would go in and do whatever we, you know, for a hundred bucks, like now granted a hundred bucks is what a game should maybe cost. Right, I don't know, but you could spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars, but but you could accelerate. And a lot of those games, like you're talking about, mobile games, they set it up just to make money. That's right, right. And so, you, there, in many ways, there might not even be a path to achieve what you want on any normal timetable on any like human scale timetable. Just like any form of media, you know, there's great product and content out there, and and there's some exploitive not great content, right? So for parents, I always say like, don't, um, I'm biased because I make games, but I'm very pro games, right? Don't think of all screen time as the same in the same way you don't think of all like book time as the same, like there's crap and there's really quality stuff. So pay attention to the content, pay attention to the rating, like ideally play alongside your child and have a shared experience. And there's some great content out there but there's also stuff that can be a little bit exploitive in its mechanics going after your wallet or too much time and got to keep an eye out for that so you think that the games if they're done right could be used as a character building exercise 100 percent. i mean that's what i am now dedicated to so in 2019 i exited high res very friendly i just had new pursuits that I wanted to go after. And uh, I'll give you a specific example of character and esports. Um, 
the sizzle and the impact. So to market our game, and now I'm talking about an, a game Smite, which is a multiplayer game based on mythology from all over the world. You play gods and goddesses from all different cultures. And to compete against the Activision Blizzards and other larger companies, we invested a lot in esports and live streaming as a marketing mechanism. And uh, so our first event, it was literally just like $100 for uh, a tournament for a weekend, and then $200, and then $300. And the community had this appetite to play competitively, so we just kept on going. Well, that's the entry fee. You had to pay $300 to just come compete. Well, that was really, it was free, and it was just, we were just putting up, instead of buying TV commercials, we said, we're going to allocate some money for a prize pool. So oh, they so were the prize pool was only free. 300 bucks. I'm, at the beginning. At the beginning, It was very yeah. cheap. And mm-hmm. then within a year, we decided we would crowdsource a prize pool, and we put a big counter in the game. And as everyone in the community bought these certain set of digital dress-up items that didn't change one bit, we were taking half of that and saying, this is going to go to the prize pool for the next world championship. I mean, this is fantastic the number just went up and up our goal for our first world championship we were like we could be one of the biggest tournaments that's ever happened if we got that number to a million dollars for playing this video game we just made we blew past that 2.6 million dollars for the first smite world championship for one tournament and Only, then how'd you spread that out like did the winner was a winner, winner got about off? half okay which is pretty typical yeah, yeah yeah and then we but so the winner made a million three well it was five five folks on the team so but they all okay, walked away okay. with a good 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 payday and um we held it in atlanta it was a good story because we had teams from china latin america europe they all traveled um what year here. Was this was in 2012 wow Early. And um, early. And only one game on planet Earth had given away more money, a game called Dota 2, which is known by gamers out there. It's big internationally. They had given away more money. No other game had given that much money in a single tournament. And um, it was all won against these international teams by uh, a team captained by a, a, a kid from Georgia, Cartersville, Georgia, uh, who continued to play professionally for many years. So. It was an amazing event, you know, live stream to millions of people, of course, made international news because of the size of the prize pool. And that was the sizzle. But getting back to the kind of the impact, it was a couple of years later, and I'd actually helped get esports gaming into the state of Georgia as a sanctioned high school activity, which it is now. There's 150 high schools playing. That have gaming teams. Gaming teams earning a going to state championship. Um, and the very first year that happened, I talked with a young person on the phone because someone had said, oh, you should really talk with Daniel. And he was really excited. He was an aspiring game designer. He was sharing this story that until video games came to his school, he never really got involved with traditional sports even academics, it wasn't really his thing. He just hadn't found his tribe back to that original concept. Mm-hmm. And this, I was FaceTiming with him. And so, you know, he pans down and he's in a wheelchair. So Daniel's been confined to a wheelchair, you know, for about a decade. And so this was an activity that he could participate in. And um, the more I started reflecting on it, thinking about it, it's like, 
this is the ultimate accessible activity. Like if you were born, even if you're, you know, physically able, but you're not as tall mm -hmm. to go into basketball, you're not as wide or as big yeah. to go into football. You don't have a hockey rank near you, ice rank near you. You're probably never going to play hockey. There's always these access considerations, mm -hmm. but there's like 3 billion gamers on the planet. 40% of planet earth is a gamer and it's just growing. So anyway, the thought was like yeah, Stephen Hawking. There's a there's a version of the world. The where game. He, yeah, Stephen Hawking is a is a, a menace in some you know gaming reality. Like he probably had a really high level World of Warcraft character. Yeah. I guess like secretly. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So the you know so what's known is it's like really accessible and it already has the attention of so many people. So then it's just like you know what do we collectively like do with that attention? And I've seen firsthand, you know, whether it's myself or my son or many other people that when it's delivered the right way, like deliberately with coaches, with tools, it really can build character um, and have the same experience that many of us did get out of team sports or maybe working on a team project. Because back to your Traditional education, it, it's tough. Like a lot of that, it, it's very test driven and people are moving along kind of through the funnel. And a lot of kids today, they don't get those team skills. They don't get the social emotional learning. They just don't have those experiences. And mm -hmm. so a lot of the work that I'm doing and we're doing now with our companies is that lane. It's using games for that. One of the things that I, and I'm, I'm interested in around this is I have some friends who are philosophers who specialize in something called virtue ethics. Now, what they spend their lives studying really is whether or not being a good human somehow makes you better at life, right? So this notion that accumulating virtues makes you more effective, hmm. might even make you smarter, which I think is a you know fascinating exploration about whether or not your level of goodness could affect your level of of intelligence. Yeah, that is fascinating. I could hit that from a bunch of different levels, especially after just with the with the family I watched. It was a second viewing for me the movie Whiplash, which is performance driven approach from a coach that maybe has a different perspective. He's leading with fear, right? And 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 uh, more brutal kind of bullying approach. But yeah, I think that um, to me, the idea, I mean, I think it goes back to Aristotle that like, if you want to be good, act like a good person. You know, it's developing habits. Like some of these things take effort until they don't because they just become a part of your character. Correct. And so what's really, what's unique about games, like I don't know if you've ever thought, I mean, because you work in a lot of media and you, now you've played some games. So, you know, when you think about it, what is it that separates a game from a movie or a book or uh, music or any other form of media? What do you think? What separates a game? What distinguishes a game as a media form? I, I, it's gotta be like uh, interaction. Exactly, it is exactly that. It is interactivity. And when you dig into what is the nature of interactivity, right? and you really dig in, it is that, you know, you in the scope of the game world have agency, that you're the protagonist of the story, right? So so great dramas like Romeo and Juliet work in other forms because you're 
sitting there with that tension, you know, and you know everything, but you can't change what Juliet's going to do. But in a game, you, you could play. be able to, yeah. right? So in a game, just the fact that you're the protagonist and you're taking agency, it just allows a lot of these character building lessons to be taught. Growth, well, what I'm wondering growth is, mindset, because like, yeah, growth mindset, right? So the so the, that's what that really this is what I'm thinking is. So when you're building these worlds, are you building worlds that try to reward certain ways of being? Right, certain virtues, and if you are, like, give me an example. Like, how are you building something that is trying to encourage a growth mindset? Right. Well, what we're doing today, because right now we're not building unique games, we're building more learning environments around games. Right. And so, this the first step is simply a lot of it's raising awareness that in every game you have agency, in every game you're presented with goals. And games are appealing because you demonstrate competency in that world. And then you're presented with a higher level goal, which is just like a learning system. Mm -hmm. It's like you have a goal, it's just outside of your reach. You fail and you fail and you fail, and then eventually you succeed and then you're given a higher goal, right? So some of it is literally just raising awareness around that and Mm -hmm. letting people know they can apply that to the rest of their life. Um, And it starts with even just deliberate play. Like for someone who takes gaming very seriously, the same way a basketball player wants to get better, they're playing Fortnite or Rocket League and they want to get better. Well, are they doing that with deliberate practice, thinking about their goals? Are they doing that with an attitude of like, making sure they don't get tilted would be the gaming vernacular, you know? Like, man, that was, you know, am I blaming my teammates? Am I am I now overheated? Am I taking time to just reflect on what my mental is? Am I thinking about my physical like, in terms of how much sleep I got? It's mm-hmm. all one system. So a lot of these things just lean into the passion for gaming and the desire to get better, but add some deliberate tools. So years ago, <clears throat> I put together a group and we invested early stage in this company based in Irvine, California called Hyper Ice. And Hyper Ice, when we invested at the time, they were just like basically an icing company. Like they they took neoprene and really nice bladders that you could fill ice with and then wrap this around some part of your body to ice the shoulder or knee or back or whatever. And then they evolved and they started making um, a vibrating foam roller. Right, so you could roll out your muscles, but then have the vibration, really strong vibration, in addition to the foam roller. And then they evolved again, and they started building uh, guns. So they have like something called the Hypervolt. That's like one of the guns mm-hmm. that you know you you know use. And they've developed you know a bunch of other devices now, like things that are for heat, and you know things that are heat and cold without using ice. That are, you just put a sleeve on and like you dial it up, and it's like magic. But maybe like five years ago. I got a, an email from them because I, you know, I'm not involved in it anymore. Other than we own a we own a piece of the company, but I'm not involved. And I got an email from them, and it was we uh, we're announcing our first gaming sponsorship. And so they were sponsoring some like professional gaming team in Southern California, and they held this whole like video vignette about the guys all talking about their physical recovery from gaming. It's a thing, right? It's a big thing. Yeah. So these days, since I'm not making games, you know, there's a company that that we have um, that's called Skillshot that's more doing events. And then there's a company called 
ghost gaming, just mm-hmm. like your friends in California. It's a professional esports team and a, a gaming lifestyle org. And just just as you said, a lot of the way Ghost monetizes, makes revenue, is you know we have specifically at Ghost, we've got a following of twenty million people that follow the ghost brand on social media or some of our ambassadors, creators, you would think of them as influencers in other markets and they're playing games and they individually have followings of more than a million people that follow them on platforms like Twitch and TikTok. And they've developed a real community. These people tune in maybe every single day to spend perhaps multiple hours with them, watching them play a game or learning about techniques for them. And so when you've got an audience of 20 million and they're Gen Z or Gen Alpha that are pretty turned off by traditional advertising, they've got ad blocker running on most of these platforms and, and you're a brand like like your yeah. recovery brand or, or the Coca-Cola we're drinking, whatever it is, um, you wanna reach these folks and you know they hate ads. They don't wanna be marketed to. So this general category of let's call it influencer marketing or creator economy where you're talking to your audience through these individuals that's a lot of how professional gaming orgs drive revenue Hmm. sponsorships and original video content and in the same way someone would sponsor the atlanta hawks or another traditional sports team they're turning to gaming to reach a different audience. So they're like, when you're playing this game, I want you drinking Coca-Cola. Exactly. Right. Product placement. Product placement. Literally, they wear jerseys when they play. and With, with, uh, with logos on logo it. Logo on the jersey. Because they're, they're live streaming themselves playing the game. They're live streaming themselves and just like that Smite $2.6 million tournament, every once in a while, there are large tentpole events. That they go to physically. Yep. They go to physically, and then the desk could be brought to you by State Farm, just like sports. All of the trappings and integrations Very that cool. you see. I actually would like to hear more about that offline. Yeah. Okay, so Skillshot is putting on these events. Yep. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that, and then I want to go to Ghost. Yeah, so um, at the end of the day, what I'm trying to build is a vertically integrated gaming lifestyle org and but it's um, not a league because you're letting other people come in and play who are teams from outside that's right i mean the um people describe gaming and esports as the wild west because you just take it you, you take for granted traditional sports and the structure of sports and you forget that it's 150 years ago that you know someone first threw pigskin to someone else right or a round ball and well, in Europe, you know, in the like soccer leagues, you still kind of have that remnant because it started out that there'd just be some league in a, or some team in a city and they would play some other team in a city. And then they'd say, well, let's go play that other city too. And over time, then, you know, there might be 15 cities that were playing against each other. And then they might say, well, God, now we have 25 cities and that's too many to play. So, now we're going to say, if you're the best, you get to play up here. And if you're the bottom, you play down here. And so all that relegation was just the the organic evolution. Exactly. And and in Europe, 
it's more promotion and regulation that's accepted. In the US, it's more franchises, right? And you're locked into a market and each has pros and cons. And and esports is is uh, very early. So even what the right model is, is unclear. I think there's different models that can work and they work differently for different games because esports is at the level of sports. So in the same way, the event series is completely different for golf and tennis or other action sports. And that's different from the NFL mm-hmm. and the MLB. Every game has a different number of uh, players that play on a team. Some are very event and tournament based and some are more league based. Some are franchised and some are not. So it's all over the map. So what we're trying to do is really be part of building out the entire ecosystem, some ourselves and some through partners. For different games. For different games. And so Skillshot is more, you know, you would call it a picks and shovels or behind the scenes infrastructure play. As long as gaming and gaming content is rising um, because we just provide a production service, uh, it can drive revenue. And it's very similar. I mean, we're really trailing off of the work that you and others did here around film production of it started out as just more manufacturing we've got space we've got equipment we also in our case have people to do the work because it's such a specialized skill set Mm -hmm. and other people will write us a check to make a production then over time we've used that revenue to invest in more Making your own productions. IP, making our own productions or acquiring other assets. And that's what got us to acquire Ghost Gaming, which is now a brand that we own that has competitive teams. It has these influencers. It has a different revenue model, which are brands looking to reach eyeballs through those properties. So tell me about Ghost. Ghost is based in Atlanta? It is. It was built in Los Angeles by other folks um and we just liked the distinctive look honestly of the logo it's a great the great name brand. it was just clean everything yeah and um and we saw an opportunity to acquire it and they really didn't they were la based as founders but their creators and players were all over the world and we've pretty much uh been deliberate that we want to focus on North America, and we want to really build out the heat of fandom from Atlanta and Georgia. So we're kind of focusing our impact and fandom on Atlanta, Georgia, North America. And um, this is a controversial point in esports because it's digital. It doesn't really have to have a home market because you reach everyone. But I probably have a, a view that most people don't share, which is Ultimately, these different esports orgs need to differentiate some way, and society knows about geography. It, it's just built into us a little bit, yeah, and sure. and it's, and that's it's back also, to tribalism. Back to tribalism, and back to when we start to do give back, which we do a lot with Ghost. Um, we've built out community centers with computers. Uh, we built out a high school and a middle school with computers so that it becomes a resource for public school that can't afford it to play and to practice and also to learn 
skills, not just character skills, workforce development around coding or graphic design. This all goes back to 10 year old me. It's like gaming is a gateway to learning. So like, let's kind of pay that forward. And so rather than scatter that impact everywhere, we're focused on Atlanta, then Georgia, then the Southeast, and let's kind of build the heat of fandom there. So we aspire Ghost to be a global brand, but the heat is coming from this region. The same way I grew up, you know, I cheered for Michael Jordan, who's a UNC guy, Bulls. They were a global brand, but the heat of fandom still had a location, and that's what we're looking to do. Yeah, you know, the, the, the Bulls are still riding on the coattail of Jordan. I think so. Okay, so Ghost, how today... How many professional gamers are part of the ghost team? And am I using the right language that we the way you talk about this? And then do you sign them for contracts for time? Like is it similar to all every other sport or it's pretty similar. Yeah. So the we've got about I'm gonna say twenty five to thirty gamers that are signed to ghost. And one thing that's a little different from traditional sports, um, it'd be almost as if, let's take the Hawks, if the Hawks played not only basketball, but football and baseball under the Hawks banner. That's right, because right, the next question was going to be about how many games you guys are playing. Right, and so it's, it's actually the way people don't really think about it, but it's the way college works. So the Bulldogs, mm -hmm. they've got multiple teams it's not the same players that are playing football and basketball. Same with gaming. It's not like decathlon where you're trying to be the ultimate gamer and play in these different events. You specialize mm -hmm. in a game and it's just yeah. as unusual. Football, ba baseball, basketball, That's women's right. softball. Exactly. So we have folks that are specializing in Valorant or Fortnite or Rocket League or and each of those games have a different number of people on the team, but they're all representing goes so that's how it works and, and then, they may or may not even train together because they may or may not be on a team exactly right yeah they're and, on they're on, under an umbrella but just like the basketball team isn't playing with the football team they the, might have dinner together and they might all be georgia bulldogs but that they're not training together because they're literally training on different skills mm -hmm. some of these games are more about your hand-eye coordination some are about strategy some are about you know the communication i mean they all have elements of both but they're different skills and um and then there's a common back end just like a college team that uh is helping with landing sponsors or managing the social media handles or player mental health you know i mean there's some common services that we can leverage across the different the different players um and uh yeah and then just like uh your um recovery apparatus that sponsored the team like one of the partners locally we just brought in for ghost is is piedmont the healthcare provider love them and um they particularly work with our property that's ghost owned that focuses on all the colleges in the region um, and this is we're doing this for a number of reasons um college esports is growing so it's a growing area of the industry it has a really clear footprint of all colleges in Georgia. So for a brand like Piedmont or others that care about that geography, we can serve that with a college property. Um, and it's uh, long-term, it's intended to be a talent pipeline for our pro team. Of course. So uh, yeah, there's a lot of reasons. So, so Ghost sense. is sponsoring Georgia Tech 
Is that, I mean, would t- how's how's that working from a from a collegiate standpoint? From a college standpoint, we actually own and operate the Georgia Esports League, and so Georgia Tech, UGA, West Georgia, also Morehouse, Morris Brown. Um, there's 15 colleges currently that play in that league. What that what's that league called? It's it's literally called Gel Georgia Esports League, wow. and. Um, and it's it's intended to be very comprehensive. So there's an element of competition every once in a while. There's tournaments, but there's also curriculum. You know, our friends at the Georgia Film Academy, and so it's a way to expose these kids that have a passion around gaming to oh, maybe you want to take some coursework in that. Well, so Georgia Film Academy is a partner of the league, so it's a great marketing opportunity for them because this is the demographic that would probably want to take the courses in not just esports but maybe but film, film production yeah. and others because mm-hmm. it resonates with their with their interest so and it's a lot of community building um, because even though we're assisting these young people are also they're hitting brand new ground you know they're doing it with a small group at georgia tech and then there's another group at uga there's another group at morehouse there's another group at a tiny private college named Bruton Parker that has the most, the best performing esports team uh, of all of them. Them, Come and, on. them and Kennesaw. Yeah, most people don't realize. What's it, the name of that school? I've never heard. So Bruton Parker. Where are they based? Where are they? I, I've never been there. I know they're a small. They probably have a total enrollment. I'm, I'm going to get it wrong, but of single digit thousands. And them and Kennesaw State have probably the strongest competitive platforms, and that's because they offer scholarships and Georgia Tech and UGA do not. Do not. Because if you're a small liberal arts school, um, you could differentiate to a certain group of people pretty affordably. You, you could put five kids on a modest scholarship. You may not have a football team or a basketball team and you're leapfrogging your recruitment Super efforts. cool, I love this. Yeah, and so, so yeah, it's literally them in Kennesaw that are kind of on top right now nationally, so. Okay, so then, um, but so tell me about Ghost and inside of this world of how many, what'd you say, 30, 40? 30 to 40 creators, creators or players. What have been, what have been the biggest wins? Like what are the, what are the the ghost stories, if you will? (laughs) Oh, good one. We're going to have to use that, ghost Mm -hmm. stories. Um, There's a lot. I mean, I think the one that's the most recent, which is a little painful because it wasn't a win, but it's still informative. Um, We went really hard, uh, in a game called Valorant. And so Valorant is produced by the same company that makes the game League of Legends. Um, It's a first person shooter and it's very much an up and coming game and has a lot of viewership behind it, a lot of attention. And we, as Ghost, uh, we signed a coach first, we signed a scout, and then went out to acquire the best players out there. And sometimes that meant paying a transfer fee from another uh, team sometimes that meant that's very European. Just uh, just you know signing the the person. And to your question earlier, they're generally contracts. They're not usually W two employees or contracts, and they might be between six months and two years. You know, from an industry standpoint, it really just depends. Some could be longer. We put together a, a really good team um, and and did a run that was close to like worst to first. I mean, we were unranked. We kind of came from nowhere. And really due to the strength of our coach and finding a few 
amazing tools that were out there. These were not cheats. People do cheat in esports. These were literally advanced analytics that would look at a game that was played and give you data on what happened in the match to help just like happens in sports. Right, like what are the tendencies? Exactly. How did like, they win? What do they, you know, right. what do they do? Exactly. We're, mm-hmm. we're, you know, we're always peeking out of this side too early and we're not covered and they're taking us down. And so heat maps of the physical map and um, really cool stuff. So that with the coach, we, we made an amazing run. And in hindsight, we, we, we did what's called boot camping, which is the team comes together to a physical location in Atlanta and plays together. And the vibes are better and the chemistry's better and they got a huge performance. You put them in boost. a house or? Yep, yeah, uh, we put them actually in, in apartments and they came to the ghost they come headquarters. To ghost headquarters uh-huh. Top NPCs, train, eat together, whole thing. And that started the run and then they went back to online. We probably, sh- we should have done that at stayed. the end. Yeah, we should have either brought them back or stayed because they ended up playing a very important match remotely and close but no cigar and we were out mm. so it just tells you a lot about the world of of esports it's it's performance based at the end of the day um, yeah and so you're just like any sport you're you're trying to figure out how to maximize performance exactly and your theory and it's a working theory but it might be that in the big important matches it's better to get people physically together that's pretty well known it's ultimately just cost benefit risk trade-off but i think it's pretty well accepted that you're going to play better if you're together the the more macro thing that's going on i would say with ghost and with esports teams is just um most teams if you look at their portfolio of spending and they always had a blend between competitors that try to win tournaments and creators that are just engaging online Teams, including Ghost, have shifted more of their focus probably to the entertainment side versus the competitive side. It's just a little bit easier to stay relevant Mm -hmm. um, as an entertainer. So it's a whole other theme, um, but one that Ghost has leaned into. All right, let's go down a different road a little bit. Um, Obviously, you've made Atlanta your home, and you've made it not only your, your personal home, but your home for this business. So you must be pretty bullish about Atlanta's infrastructure around internet and gaming and et cetera. Talk a little bit about um, what you've seen in Atlanta and why Atlanta proves to be a really good home for this kind of work. Yeah, I love Atlanta. I'm definitely a, a fanboy for, for Atlanta and I've worked here since 90. So again, um, I think the movie industry has done a lot of heavy lifting here around infrastructure and educating legislators there's still work to go but around the opportunity um the tax credit that georgia passed for film and tv does apply to esports so that's a very real tangible benefit to our business here if for skill shot so when we're bidding on an event let's say and we're probably going to compete against los angeles well their space is more expensive the labor is more expensive So we'll be able to do it more affordably. And then on top of that, if it's a large enough event, it will qualify for the film and TV tax credit as well. That's a big part of why we're doing the Skillshot business here. Um, And hopefully that, you know, credit continues as is because it benefits our business. And then more broadly, um, we talked about a lot of the workforce overlaps between film and TV. So with all the investment here in film and in traditional sports, we can get really good labor here. 
and it's just the center of culture. Um, when it comes to Ghost, we need to be relevant. So with Skillshot, it's infrastructure, it's it's internet, it's tax credits, it's some of the boring stuff. And with Ghost, we want to be relevant, and we want to cross the streams with culture, with with music. Atlanta's the center of hip hop culture, right, and and other music as well. So with Ghost, a lot of that resonates as well. So, so I know you're on the host committee for the Atlanta Digital World Summit that's coming up, um, first annual. What do you think makes Atlanta unique from an infrastructure standpoint that most people don't know about and which this summit is going to start to expose people to? Yeah, I think Atlanta and Georgia does an exceptional job with workforce development and exposure. And I think this is the summit is part of that. It's part of a family of activities and activations that help share knowledge from really experienced industry professionals with the up and coming generation. So personally, um, that's the part of the summit that resonated with me is like rock stars across all these different industries, so gaming, film, TV, music, even FinTech and some of the new technologies there, speaking to an audience of folks who are just curious and want to break in. And so I think to me, Atlanta and Georgia, it just has a collaborative vibe to it. I agree with that. And these distinct silos of industries that used to be completely separate. It's like we're having this conversation. They're more and more coming together. And there's this thought about paying it forward and sharing knowledge with the next generation. So hoping that this Atlanta Digital Summit hits all three of those elements. What part of just physical infrastructure plays a role in the world of gaming? Like when you think there must be places where it's disadvantageous or even impossible to be an online gamer because your internet is just not high enough quality. What role is that playing in the development of these professional leagues, professional players? Are they having to live in places where there's dark fiber? Are they, are they actually physically trying to live next to uh, the best internet run with that a little bit for me. Yeah, I mean, you nailed it. It's like you need the platform to play on and uh, and that could be a PC or a computer. These days there are competitive games on the phone, which is great because that's a cheaper device that just about every kid will have. And then you need really good internet. And so rural areas of Georgia may not be there yet. So that's important. And you're right, at the highest level, a professional player even if they have fiber to their house, they're literally moving to be close to the game server. So if you're playing Rocket League, you probably are in Texas. If you're playing Fortnite and you're in the East Coast, you might move to Virginia. So they know where the server is from the game company. We can't even control that as the event operator or the producer. It's that you made the game and you have servers and they generally serve the whole East Coast pretty well, but you had to put them somewhere and you focus them in the case of Fortnite in Virginia and kids will move there to be as close to zero ping no latency yeah no that's possible just for that tiny little if bit you're advantage. living in Seattle San Francisco LA you have a disadvantage over somebody who's living in Newport News you do now most games 
if they're doing well enough, they'll have East Coast servers and West Coast servers. And so literally when you're playing, you're choosing that. And so when it comes to a tournament, it's interesting. They'll actually, um, they'll actually flip servers uh, where maybe we're playing the first set of matches on West Coast servers and now we're switching to East Coast servers if everyone can't be physically located, you know, in the same place. Right. That's another argument for what skill shots started to develop, which is if you're going to have the highest level of gaming interaction, then you have to try to make everything equal to then have the best players emerge from an equal playing field. And the only way to maybe get a truly equal playing field is everybody in the same place. Exactly. I mean, COVID made people more accepting of online play because there was no choice. At least you could still do it, unlike other traditional sports. So at least the game still went on. But the usual practice is the early rounds, the regular season, they happen really affordably online and you don't have to travel. It's super convenient and it's just produced. But as you whittle it down and as the money starts to matter, then you... um you bring people together, which is great for a company like Skillshot and great for a region like Atlanta because you're actually bringing folks together. I mean, this December, there'll be a festival, DreamHack, in Georgia World Congress Center. Be about 40,000 people coming together for a three-day event. And uh, that's one of probably five major events this fall, consumer-oriented events where people will gather to watch other people play video games. Is there going to be a video game element, maybe even a competition around the di- the Atlanta Digital World Summit? I know we definitely have a panel. I know we I know um, we've got some uh, high powered guests coming to uh, speak about the world of developing games. I mean, I think it'd be fascinating. I don't know if there's time, but it sounds like it'd be a really cool thing to have some sort of event, some sort of uh, digital gaming event around that. Might, might add some uh, interest around that. Yeah, I love it. Um, more gaming, the better. All right, well, we're out of time, but Todd, it's always good to talk to you, and this has been um, enlightening for me because, I mean, obviously the world of gaming is is not my expertise, but um, it's it's fun to be able to talk to somebody who's been there from the from the beginning. This was great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This has been the Black Hole Podcast. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. 